everybody. Welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast, episode 61, starting it off with a 12 string. Somebody requested one, one of my favorite instruments, and of course, the king of double course stringed acoustic instruments made famous by Lead Belly and Pete Seeger, and later Roger McGuinn and David Crosby. And I picked up that particular guitar in LA in the time I was working with CSN and Jackson. I got it on a weekend trip out there, which was an interesting weekend. I'll get into some other time. I was courting a young singer, not young, but uh, <laughs> early 30s, somebody in the business. And I was kind of expanding into uh, helping out other artists. And uh, it was interesting. She was in a band called the Scissor Sisters at the time and a great session singer in New York City. And uh, whatever, it's kind of private. <laughs> I'll share it with you, though. But anyway, so kicking it off, episode 61, another busy week coming to you from the beautiful lush climate of New England. It's still in the 30s at night, mid 30s, but it's sunny during the day and we will take it. Spring is sprung or has sprung. And, um, you know, it's been a crazy week. We had Elon Musk's takeover last Monday, which I opened the show talking about. And like we predicted, you know, the deal was accepted by the end of the day. And Twitter sort of changed in my opinion it became a little different pretty quickly at least on my end you know a lot of accounts lost a lot of followers not that that matters but i lost about four thousand in the week and uh the tone has changed you know which which you can only expect but it, it's alarming because it was already you know not not like a stronghold of sane sensible dialogue and guys like Elon Musk have an army of followers that as soon as you criticize him, they go after you. And, you know, I don't mind that. I mean, I hate it, but <laughs> I'm not afraid of it. I should rephrase that. But it's dangerous because it makes people not want to speak out because you spend your whole day just blocking trolls. And from my perspective, I'm not giving them a platform. I know people get upset that they can't comment on my tweets anymore, but what is that about anyway? I mean, it's nice to say, hey, I enjoyed this, but I don't think the people who complain about not being able to reply understand what it's like, you know, giving a platform to alt-right fascists that are trying to, you know, swarm accounts they don't like. And it's a different experience if you have a few thousand followers, which is normal and what most people have, than if you have a few hundred thousand. You know, the, the bots are crazy and the tweets sometimes get more traction. And in my case, I feel like I'm giving them a platform. And why would I do that? You know, I wouldn't have helped Nazis spread their propaganda in World War II. And I'm not going to, you know, help alt-right fascists spread their hate messages now. So it's as simple as that. So if you're wondering, that is why I turned off the comments. You can still retweet it. You know, you can you can find me a lot of other ways. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can comment and, you know, we all got to pitch in and do what we can in this new climate because because things are changing. And a guy like Elon Musk does not have democracy's best interests at heart. I think that's abundantly clear. I think it's also clear that he's incredibly unwell as a human being. 
You know, this week he told people to stop taking their meds. Like, who are you to say that? You know, you have hair plugs, dude. <laughs> you know, you're a billionaire. Like, you've done nothing to help the planet. They'd like to say that, like, you know, Tesla is good for the environment. Elon Musk doesn't give a shit about the environment. SpaceX just had another turndown from FAA because they wouldn't submit documentation to the Army Corps of Engineers about their expansion. They want to expand their launching pad, which is already, if you don't know, it's in what's known as the Boca Chica Wildlands in South Texas. It's the mouth of the Rio Grande part of the Gulf of Mexico. It's a biologically unique place on the planet. There's literally no place like it anywhere else on the earth. You know, it's an ecologically diverse and beautiful area. It's home to snowy plovers and ripley turtles, you know, and all these endangered species that nest there. And already the snowy plovers, plovers before he built the thing, there was like eight nests and now they're down to one. And his reasoning was if a rocket blows up there, who cares? There's no people around, you know? People aren't the only thing on this planet. You know, animals share this planet with us and they have a lot to teach us. And we can't lose species because some billionaire wants to build his own rockets in a vanity project, you know, talking about colonizing Mars. That alone is insane. If you were on a Tinder date with somebody and you asked them what they, you know, what their life's goals were and they, they said to colonize Mars, you'd be like, excuse me, I need to go to the restroom and you wouldn't come back. <laughs> At least I wouldn't. Right. So that's where this guy's coming from to start with. And this, you know, idea that he's trying to better the planet is bullshit. He's trying to serve himself. He's trying to sell Dogecoin on the Internet and he's trying to control dialogue. And I don't think it's unrelated that he just got these turndowns from the FAA the fourth time they've sort of delayed their decision. It happened a matter of weeks ago and his attempt to take over Twitter. Right. These things are related because if he helps fascists come back to power, if he helps Donald Trump get back to the White House, he's going to be able to do whatever the hell he wants in South Texas. And he knows that he knows if Gover Governor Abbott stays in power, he gets to call the shots because economics is all that's going to matter to these guys and their own hold on power. And anybody who can help them becomes their ally. It's the same system Putin has in Russia. His oligarchs are people who, you know, bend to his will, and then they get to profit, and the people get to suffer. So a guy like Elon is, is coming from that same playbook. And it's terrifying, you know, and it should scare you. And he's also leaving California, because he doesn't want to pay taxes, right? He's already fleeing to Texas for political reasons, because he doesn't want to pay his fair share. And what does he do? When he gets on Twitter, he attacks AOC right? The architect and author of the Green New Deal, essentially. If you care about the environment, you're not attacking one of the younger leaders in Congress who's trying to bring these issues to the forefront, right? Congress itself gave Twitter, I mean, Tesla, it's all the same now, right? <laughs> or will be. Congress itself gave him money. You know, we helped fund SpaceX, right? So this guy's already taking from this country and he's giving nothing back which is a theme. That's a theme of billionaires. As I've said many times on this podcast, guys like, you know, Jeff Bezos is like, his trucks are all over the city. Go in Manhattan, 
they're double parked all over the city right now, distributing crap that people are buying on amazon.com that they could just buy on the corner, right? But it's easier to hit click on your phone sitting in your apartment and you're tying up city streets. You're putting more potholes on the ground. You're on the highways. You're coming through our communities. You're, 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 you're contributing to the depreciation of our infrastructure without sustaining it, without kicking in. You know, when you go to an AA meeting, you put money in a basket because it's self-sustainable through our own contributions. And billionaires somehow don't live by that ethos. Their ethos is more, more, more. And how they consolidate that power is getting an army of worshipers who think that's really cool. I'm going to be like him. And isn't that funny? He just says dumb stuff on Twitter all day. You know, he says he's going to put cocaine back in Coca-Cola. That's not what you want. You don't want somebody in charge of that much wealth being a jerk all day. You know, that might be funny in class when you're cutting up, you know, and being like an idiot teenager. And that's what he acts like. He's got the maturity of a 14 year old, you know, and a lot of 14 year olds are, are more mature. OK, there's something obviously wrong with the dude. He's got like eight kids. He names them after the pie sign. You know, an interviewer was interviewing him and his girlfriend or whatever it is, his partner recently. And they heard the reporter heard a baby cry upstairs. And she was like, what's that? And they were like, that's another one of our kids we didn't want you to know about. Like what? You know, not that any of that is our business, but it points to like, there's something wrong with this dude. You know, and he's also in business with Peter Thiel and Peter Thiel and Elon started PayPal. Essentially, Elon had a company called X. Peter Thiel had another company. There were currency, you know, ways to send money digitally. And they combined forces and started PayPal. Right. And Peter Thiel is the biggest, biggest backer of MAGA and big lie candidates in this election cycle. There's dozens of candidates that Peter Thiel is backing right now that are running for office as Republicans in battleground states, in Wisconsin, secretaries of states, the kind of guys that in the next election are going to say, nope, the Democrat didn't win. We want Trump or DeSantis or Tucker Carlson or whoever the godforsaken nominee is going to be. I think the one thing we agree on, it's going to be bad, <laughs> whoever it is. Right. That's who Peter Thiel is backing. He's backing J.D. Vance, a guy who's tripping over himself to become the mouthpiece of the Trump family. You know, he said this weekend that he thinks Biden is letting fentanyl across the border so they can kill rural Trump voters. First of all, nothing could be further from the truth. And Biden has confiscated tons of fentanyl. Right. And not, I'm not even going to get started on how, you know, pharmaceutical companies created the opioid epidemic in this country and walked free. That's another issue. It's connected, but we don't have time in this hour to do that, right? But he said that. That lets me know that Trump and Trump Jr. Scrump gave him their backing so he would say whatever they wanted, because that's the kind of line that would come out of Don Jr.'s mouth. Most of the lines go up his nose. Some of them come out of his mouth. And that's one of them. OK, so they gave him their blessing so he would be their mouthpiece and be even more outrageous. You know, and of course, that's 
not true and it's insane, but the people he's saying it to don't know that. You know, they're weaponizing hatred and they're turning Americans against each other. There's people that legitimately, legitimately believe Democrats are just awful people. I've seen it myself. You know, in Westchester, in Putnam County, I've seen people react to Democrats like we're ISIS or something. You know, that's insane. That's never happened before in this country. And that's being funded by billionaires who not only don't want to pay taxes, they don't want to be regulated. They want hate speech because the people that support those guys don't ask a lot of questions. They get all riled up at these rallies, like I talked about in the car rant. You know, it's WrestleMania to them. They get to show up, they buy some swag, they get a t-shirt, they see their buddies, they hit the vape pen a couple times, they scream about fascists, they get all worked up. It's fun, you know? Anger's a character defect. It's like a drug. Sometimes you use it not to feel your own feelings, right? And these are people that feel powerless. They feel forgotten. And it's not legitimate because they're not willing to look at the source, right? And J.D. Vance was a purveyor of that myth, right? He wrote the Hillbilly Elegy and left-wing press bent over backwards to interview this guy and talk about him like he had some insights into rural America. He was a Yale-educated butt munch who was looking for his own power and Netflix made a movie. Ron Howard directed it. You know, I'm not indicting them, but they fell for the con that this guy was selling. He was about himself. He had no insights. You want to read insights into Southern, like rural families living in poverty, you know, read Rick Bragg, read all over but the shouting and the books that came after it. I got one of them right here. The Prince of Frogtown. Read about his father. You know, these guys who worked their fingers to the bone their whole lives and were always skinny because they never had enough food to eat and they gave it to their families. You know, there's a lot of hardship that's happened in rural America. And if you look at it all, it's the same pattern over and over. It's industrialist at the beginning of this century, keeping people down, you know, and farmers, you know, and before that plantation owners, the people in power are always looking for cheap labor. You know, they're always looking to use people and they view their lives as expendable and they manipulate them. And it's never been more prevalent than now, because back in the day, you didn't have social media, right? People couldn't consume this 24-7. They weren't on Twitter and they weren't on YouTube watching Ben Shapiro and all these guys. And as I've said before, the numbers of the right-wing purveyors of this filth they're astronomical compared to the numbers of the left. You know, it's not even a fair fight because there's just so much more hunger for that on the right because they're not sitting around reading the New Yorker. They're not getting their information from other sources. They're not reading the New York Times. And the left is a lot more diversified in how it takes in information. And the smartest people don't even dick around, <laughs> you know, with social media and like, you know, the smartest people I know are not like, hey, I, I watched this news show on YouTube last night, you know, or this podcast or something. It just ain't happening. And I'm not denigrating all of us who do that. Obviously, I'm in that mix. But my point is, you know, we have a wealth of information, whereas the right wing media echo chamber is Fox News, 
Tucker Carlson and these right wing zealots, Alex Jones, you know, all these people that are sort of being manipulated and they're getting the strings pulled by Roger Stone and all these folks that are deciding whose information gets to go into those people, you know, who gets to put the ingredients in the soup, so to speak. And that'll be the theme of this podcast, because that's Elon Musk's interest in Twitter is controlling the algorithms. You know, after Monday, by Monday night, a joke, for example, I would have made a week ago on a Tuesday that would have gotten 10,000 likes, you know, or a statement that would have gotten 10, 20,000 likes. I'm not bragging about it. I don't care about the likes, but I, I, I know what, how the content, content gets interacted with on my Twitter. They dropped off immediately. It was 500 likes, 600 likes, no, numbers I hadn't seen before, just by the, the amount of people that follow me and, you know, where my content kind of goes, it generally gets a high visibility. And it was clearly, you know, getting sort of suppressed at the same time, you know, that followers were falling off and they were being reallocated. And these might, they might be bots, you know, good riddance. I don't, uh, as again, I don't really care about that. I'm using it as an example to look at these metrics, right? You know, Ron DeSantis bragged about picking up a couple hundred thousand followers, as, as did Madison Cawthorn of all people. You really think Madison Cawthorn was getting more followers this week? You know, he wasn't having the best week a right-wing politician could have. And then that's putting it mildly, right? So, you know, Bolsonaro picked up 100,000 followers in 24 hours, as did DeSantis. That's what Elon Musk wants. He wants to control that narrative because who controls that narrative controls a huge chunk of the population. And you don't need that many. With an electoral college system, you just kind of need to be a chaos agent in a few swing states and it's game over. You know, And that's what Trump and these guys learned in the last election. And they won't fall they won't fall into the, the patterns that, you know, didn't work last time. And that's why they're replacing the secretary of states. They want the power to just say, nope, our guy won. What are you going to do about it? You know, and what are we going to do about it? You know, how much, you know, how much stomach are we going to have to send the National Guard into Arizona, you know, and, and make them certify a democratic elected, you know, democratically, you know, a Democrat president, right? Are we going to do that? Because they're going to be like, surround the Capitol with our militia, get in your pickup truck, grab your gun and come defend Trump because the liberals demons that we've told you for four years are eating babies and Satan worshipers are trying to steal it from you. And these guys have been brainwashed, you know, they're going to do it. They're going to take up arms. I hope not, but you know that's the way it's going. And and what arrogance do we have to think the makeup of our humanity is any different than the extremism we've seen in Europe, and we're currently seeing in Europe. We've seen in the Middle East, right? People are people. If you brainwash them and you make them feel aggrieved, and that another person is the cause of their suffering, they feel like they're fighting for their families and their home. You know, and that's a dangerous thing. And, and, and with the, the folks that are sort of buying this bullshit on the right, these are people that are already primed 
to feel that way. They're already toxic, toxically masculine, you know, and pro-military. And they think they need 15 AR-15s in their house, you know, to protect their families because they've been buying the bullshit the NRA has been selling them for 40 years, right? So it's a tinderbox. And then, you know, the next guy that comes and throws a match on it, it's going to explode. And it doesn't have to be an all out civil war. You know, it's not going to be people going up against the U.S. Army and Navy fighter jets. Right. But it'll be people blowing up Planned Parenthood centers and burning down synagogues and doing all kinds of other hateful things, attacking immigrants, all the kind of stuff that's already happening. Right. It's dangerous. We need mature, sober, conscious people in charge of this country, and we need it quickly. We have it now in leadership. You know, we have that with Biden. We don't have a Justice Department that really seems to understand the gravity of the moment. I hope Merrick Garland is doing something. It sounds like he may be. It's not fast enough, as we all know. Alvin Bragg isn't doing anything, right? Trump's grand jury just expired this weekend. It's May 1st. I'm doing this on Sunday. It's May 1st. It's done. Yesterday, it expired. That grand jury had been impaneled for like almost two years. They had prosecutors coming in. They were taking evidence, right? They wanted to charge Trump and the two top prosecutors quit because Alvin Bragg wouldn't do it. And these were legal eagles. These were ballers. These were dudes from Paul Weiss. Like these were experienced prosecutors that were like, we got this guy dead to rights. Let's go for it. And Alvin Bragg was like, nah, you know, because it's a political issue. He didn't want to get dragged into a big high profile case now that he's got his big break as a politician because the DA is a political appointment. You run for office and get elected, you know, and it's your ticket to the big time. You know, and I can't help but think he's not involved with Eric Adams and saying, hey, why make trouble for ourselves? Because it's like I always say, it's not just Trump. It's all the businesses that do transactions with Trump. It's all the people that get a a piece of that corruption. And do you really want to expose that now that you're in the big leagues? And Alvin Bragg didn't want to. And Cy Vance started that investigation. A guy had already given Ivanka a pass at Trump Soho and Eric and Don Jr. because they were lying to investors. You know, and they built that Trump Soho, they built it on an old abolitionist church that had the remains of enslaved people buried beneath it and in the yard. And it was on the historical register and it should have been protected. And those guys steamrolled over it and built their crappy Trump Soho, which by the way, wasn't even in Soho, it was in Tribeca. Okay, it was below Canal Street, right? The the whole thing's a scam, but it's a big business scam. So Cy Vance didn't hold them accountable for that and many other things. And at the very end was like, all right, I'm gonna open this investigation. And it looked like it was a legit investigation and it was going forward. But Vance knew he wasn't gonna seek re-election and he knew another guy would come in and that other guy shut it down. And that's what happens. That's the pattern that Trump has exploited forever. The Justice Department opened their first case against Trump and his dad in 1973 for discrimination in housing. Right? They would take a red pen and write on an application if it belonged to an African-American family and they wouldn't rent to them. 
okay? as illegal and as racist as it gets. And it started in 1973, but running out the clock and lawyering, lawyering up is an effective strategy. And we saw it with Robert Mueller, right? Robert Mueller took forever, serious investigation, a little too expansive and a little too, I'll leave the family and business side out of it, in my opinion. But what happened? Bill Barr came in and said, hey, bud, land that plane. There's a new sheriff in town, wrap it up and hand it to me and me only. And that's what he did. And Bill Barr went out, lied about the results. The rest of us didn't get to see it for six weeks. People breathlessly covered Bill Barr's press conference, which was in the spring. If you remember a couple years ago, 2019 or whatever, and all the headlines were, they find no evidence of Russia collusion. Trump is exonerated. Right. And then six weeks later, the rest of us get to read the, unre- the redacted version. And even in that, it was like, what? This is far from saying Trump's innocent. But at that point, it was too late. And he had used the system against, its, against itself for his own interests. It's like legal jujitsu. That's the kind of stuff Trump knows how to do. That's the kind of stuff Roy Cohn taught him to do. And we keep seeing that pattern playing out because other people are involved, because people's political futures are involved, because money is involved. You know, greed is the essential corruptor in all of this. How much money do you need? As I said last week, how much money does Elon Musk need? He could wake up any morning, pick a problem in the world and solve it. If you gave me the opportunity to make sure some kid or a million kids didn't go to bed hungry tonight, I would take it. I would feel like the luckiest man in the world that I got to make a difference in their lives. And these guys don't do that. It's all about themselves, right? It's all about expanding their wealth. When it's obscene wealth, a billion dollars is obscene. $200 billion is dangerous. It's like giving somebody a nuclear weapon, right? We can't even fathom the amount of danger inherent in that much wealth in the wrong hands. You know, and we have to confront those issues now. We have to regulate this stuff. I'm not necessarily saying you have to put a cap on how much somebody can earn in life, you know, but you got to tax them. You got to hold them accountable. You can't be afraid of their wealth. And that's where we're at now. People are afraid of the wealth in terms of holding them accountable and people are worshiping the wealth and they build these armies, these digital armies. And it's, it's important. You know, it's not something you can just laugh off. Well, that's just a Twitter account. Who cares? It's an anonymous, stupid thing with a flag. It does matter. It is a weapon. It can be weaponized and it can sway the results of an election. That's what we saw with Trump. That's what Russia did. You know, they targeted these people that were ripe for, for exploitation and they swung them Trump's way. You do that, you cheat in a few states, you take power, you ain't getting it back. You know, Trump comes to power again, he ain't giving it back. Ron DeSantis, one of these guys gets elected, it's game over. You'll never see a Democrat again, just like you can't have a Democrat running a fair face race in Ohio in a congressional district because of the gerrymandering. 
That's why Jim Jordan can throw burner phones in the Potomac all day long and not fear any repercussions because he knows he can't get kicked out of office. You know, hopefully Tim Ryan will win the Senate race if he doesn't. And you have J.D. Vance as a U.S. senator. Hold on to your hat. Okay. I say it all the time. Like, look at the chaos that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Boebert, Gates, you know, these sort of post-Trump era chaos agents, these QAnon freaks, look at the trouble they're causing, you know, in a short period of time. And there's a handful of them. Wait till there's 30 of them. You're not going to be able to keep up with it. You know, people's heads spin with this stuff. People's heads are spinning now. You know, text came out this week that Sean Hannity was texting Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, and saying, tell me what I need to say. This is post-election, like post-election day election. I don't mean in February. I mean like November, a couple days after the people voted. Hannity saying, tell me what to tell them. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? We is your key word there. He's saying we. He's aligning himself with the White House, and it's undeclared, right? He's supposed to be an info journalist or whatever you call it. But the people who watch it think it's news because it says Fox News, and they got an American flag, and they're wearing a suit and a tie. And the grandpappy watched it, you know? I don't know if the grandpappy really, because it's only been around for a while. But 20, 30 years, that's, that's a couple generations in the South, right? That's a joke. Sorry, guys. Couldn't help it. But anyway, on a serious point, right? What the hell is Sean Hannity doing? Texted saying, tell us what to say. Judge Janine was doing the same thing. Tucker Carlson was influencing content. Rupert Murdoch has one of the biggest right wing nationalists who answered only to him on the payroll at Fox News. I don't mean Tucker. I mean, the guy who ran the V-Dare site. I can't think of his name right now. Same guy that Larry Kudlow had to his birthday party in Connecticut a couple of years ago. A disgraced white nationalist had direct access to Rupert Murdoch. And Tucker Carlson had Lachlan Murdoch in his back pocket. You know, and every time there was a big outrage, the two of them would get on the cell phone and talk about how the numbers were up. And Lachlan would say, fine, Lachlan, whatever you say. And Tucker would tell his little team of sycophants, we're good. Tucker Carlson is one of the most dangerous things this country has ever faced. And he's broadcasting from a cabin up in Maine with a handful of assistants in a converted garage. And he's spewing more white nationalist crap than we've ever seen. Hitler didn't have 24-7 cable news. He didn't have YouTube and Twitter. He didn't have the resources of Fox News, a multinational corporation. You know, the papers that Murdoch owns in Australia look to what Tucker's going to say at night because they think it gives them insight into what Rupert Murdoch is thinking. That's insane. That much power. It's like secession. You remember the scene where the guys all picked the presidential candidate? at some retreat at an inn, and one of them was a white nationalist. That's what we're dealing with. Power and wealth coalesced in the hands of a few 
that are only thinking about themselves and that have no shame in the content they're putting out there. Does Tucker really believe that stuff? Yes, I think he does. I think Tucker's a deeply damaged human being. And if you read the excellent, you know, deep dive that the New York Times did on him this weekend, Nick Confessori was the author, you'll come away with that. Tucker's mom bailed when he was eight, you know, left him a dollar, never saw him again, moved to France. I'm not saying for victim status. I'm just saying the dude's obviously like sort of deeply wounded and broken which is a common theme and also has a sense of entitlement, which is something that always springs up in these dictators. If you look at the psychological profile of Donald Trump, it's deeply messed up. He's been messed up since he's a kid. He's a problem child whose own family couldn't deal with him and they covered it up and sent him to medical, meta, military school and had, you know, hit his school records and stuff. But he's damaged goods. If Trump had grown up poor in the Bronx, he would have been dead or in jail by 20 because somebody else's father would have kicked his ass for attacking their daughter, you know, or the neighborhood toughs would have taken him out for being a punk, but he was rich. So he insulated himself from that. Same with Tucker Carlson, Swiss boarding schools, Rhode Island boarding schools, Trinity College, you know, he founded the Daily Caller. That's one of the most nastiest publications that online media has ever seen all they did was race bait and make fun of people you know not in a funny way but in a misogynist ethnocentric awful nationalist way it's little rich punks you know it's like the lacrosse team goes full nazi right people raised on squash courts are ginning up poor people that are more likely to believe this kind of propaganda. And I don't mean you're likely to believe it because you're poor. I grew up poor. You know, my dad left when I was three or four. I didn't get, you know, I'd see him at Christmas or whatever. My mom had a lot of issues. But I grew up in a, in a diverse neighborhood, you know, where I was pretty much the only white kid. And I was fine with that because my friends were from this country and from other countries. And we're all in the same boat. And it was the 70s. We didn't have all this crap. The only predators we would have would be like these Christian evangelical churches that would come in on Sunday in vans and try to take us to church, you know, without parental per permission, just get in the van and come to church. And there's no freaking way we would get in that van, you know, and they try to tempt us with cookies and shit. So we knew what was up. We were street kids, right? We knew we were getting preyed upon. But what I'm saying about people in poor rural areas, if you see that like the interviews that they do when they go to a Trump rally, a friend of mine does a bunch of them, you know, and they'll be like, yeah, we're going to get rid of Obamacare. Why? You don't have health insurance. You know, you have the highest incidence of all these diseases and, and, and like higher mortality rates and higher infant more death rates, you know, in places like Mississippi, they, they compare to third world countries. And I don't like the term third world countries. I'm using it in terms of they're telling these people, you're the greatest, you know, we're going to restore what you need by stripping away what they already have, what they've fought for, you know, and they buy it because it's wrapped in a flag and it's wrapped in anger and it's a white guy saying it to them and they don't know 
a lot of people from other places or people from this place that don't happen to be white, right? So they fall for it. And it's a scam. These guys, it's always a rich white guy peddling this hate, right? It's dangerous. Elon Musk was comparing the radical left, whatever that is, and the radical right. The radical left is FDR. It's the New Deal, right? If we didn't have that, you wouldn't have the middle class of this country for all intents and purposes. If we didn't have the GI Bill, guys wouldn't have come back from World War II who'd been here a generation or two, gotten a decent job, you know, able to send themselves to college, their kids to college, worked in a factory and made 30 bucks an hour and put two cars in the garage and four kids, you know, in beds at night with a, three hot meals. That was all unions. That was all New Deal. That was all things that you consider radical left. What's radical left? Pete Seeger, you know? And he made an equation. It's the same as the radical right. The radical right is Mussolini and Hitler and the worst of us. You don't compare the two. But a guy like Elon making that comparison with the following that he has, it's dangerous because people will buy it. You know, every time I spoke out about Elon, I'd get the retweets. Look at this idiot. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they, 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 they get these talking points and they just spew them back at you. That's the branding. That's what Trump is a master of. He knows how to brand. He would sell people on his casinos like it was this glitzy, your chance to live in luxury. His casinos had the worst food in Atlantic City, right? He wouldn't give you free rooms or comps or any of the stuff that other hotels did but he had this image. So he'd send his buses as far away as Ohio and Kentucky to bring in people. And they'd put their social security checks into his slot machines and he'd send them home without so much as a free lunch. And he wouldn't let them get anywhere near him when he walked the casino floors. He would have his security guys literally push them away because they'd see him and they'd be like, oh, look, it's Trump. Hey, Mr. Trump get out of here. He's got contempt for those people. It's all contempt. Tucker Carlson has nothing but contempt for his viewers. Rupert Murdoch is not hanging out in Ohio. Peter Thiel is not hanging out in Ohio. Neither is either Elon Musk. But they're manipulating these people and they're pulling their strings. And somebody like Elon Musk, who just got turned down with his SpaceX expansion, to have another launching pad, his, as I said at the top of the show, his fourth turndown. No one's connecting that, but that just happened a couple of weeks ago. All of a sudden, he wants to buy Twitter. He's basically saying, Biden administration is not letting me do business the way I need to do business. Let's get Trump back in here. We know how to work Trump. We kiss his ass and he'll let us do whatever we want to do as long as we give him a little peace. You know, he's like a mob boss who doesn't care how you're earning. Just come in Sunday and put your envelope on the table, you know, and don't go against the family. That's what we're seeing. You know, we're seeing a mob based autocratic system springing up and it's going to be peopled and enforced by regular folks on the Internet, by regular dudes in their trucks with their guns and their T-shirts that are so far gone at this point. It's going to be very hard to bring them back because they're believing the poison 
and the disinformation that they're consuming 24 seven. You know, and, and the Democrats, and we're not all doing a bad job, but you know, we had like the White House Correspondents' Dinner this week, and it was great. Trevor Noah was great. Those were great points. Really biting, funny, awesome stuff. Let's give ourselves a pat on the back for it, and let's roll up our sleeves now that we're in a new week and be conscious and sober against what's ahead of us. Because this is a fight. You know, it's a foot race against authoritarianism. As I said, the hearings are starting in June. You know, make everyone you know watch that stuff. Don't just say, hey, we don't talk about politics. You know, when those things are on, let's have that discussion as a country, as a community, in your church, wherever. It's not the time for polite, we don't talk about it. I don't mean we have to get in screaming matches confronting each other, but have the courage to bring it up. You know, if you got that cousin who's a MAGA dude you haven't talked to, when those hearings start, that's your chance. Say, hey, Jimmy. I shouldn't say Jimmy, right? Jimmy's our old, our old uh, co-host producer. <laughs> but uh, hey, Jimmy, you know, did you see? Did you see what happened? How Mark Meadows was getting texts that he knew about January 6th was going to be violent and didn't do anything to stop it? Is that what you think patriotism is? Is that what you think democracy should be? And don't buy the bullshit when they say, oh, it's just Antifa. It's just this or that. That's what they're trying to sell you now. Trump always tries to get ahead of a story, right? He always, when he became president, was like, don't believe anybody else but me. The nasty left is always going to be attacking me. The fake news, the blah, blah, blah. So they're getting ahead of it and they're good at it. You know, and we're doing victory laps for what, you know, celebrate the fact that we have Biden and stuff now, but we're not even out of the woods. We're, we're you know, we're at the beginning of, of the real battle to save democracy. Okay. Because we, we barely got Biden in. We barely survived the Trump years. A million of us didn't, you know, if you're listening to this podcast this week, we passed a million deaths at COVID. And then we collectively sort of like, eh, it's over. Let's go to the correspondence dinner. Let's go see fish at the garden for three nights in a row. Everything's going to be good. <laughs> it's not. Okay. You got to be realistic. A business that doesn't take an honest inventory of its saleable and unsaleable goods is not a functional business, right? You don't want to go into a store and buy canned goods that have been sitting there for six years on the shelf, right? So it's the same way in a society when you think about politics. It can't be business as usual when nothing is like it was before. And that's what Trump did. He changed the game and you have to adapt accordingly and confront things, you know, and be honest about where we're really at and how dangerous this all really is. And I think most of the people that listen to this podcast are well aware of that, right? I'm obviously sort of preaching to the choir here, but this is the voice I have. I'm going to use it. And I suggest you use yours too. And I suggest you get outside and look at nature, you know, because it's spring and there's something to learn there. The flowers, you know, the birds, the blue skies. I know I talk about that every week, but this is a beautiful place. I feel like all the animals look at us and like, what are you guys thinking? This is paradise, man. 
We should all have enough to eat. We should all have enough room to move around and a clean water to drink and a clean environment. And just listen, just be still. You know, it is a joy to be alive, no matter how bad it is. This is a miracle. You know, it's like the Elon Musk. You're destroying turtles and birds and all these things in this completely diverse biological area. And all he sees it as is a place to blow up a rocket, right? It's like what we did with the Pacific Atolls, testing nuclear bombs. Oh, well, nobody's going to go there, so it doesn't matter. What? It's beautiful. And there's a thousand forms of life there, if not millions. But a guy who's not even thinking about what's on the ground when he blasts off his ship because the dream is to go to Mars, you know, the red planet that's hot. You know, it doesn't have green leafy things and lagoons and water and all the beautiful snow and mountains and people and animals like we're already in paradise. Why are you trying to go to Mars? Be here, dude. Be here now. As Ram Das said, I told you last week, my grandmother was Richard Alpert's secretary. That's Ram Das when he was at Harvard, you know. My grandma was not hippy dippy. Okay, She hung out with like the Barrigans, you know, the radical priests and stuff and loved Pete Seeger. She would take me to see Pete Seeger every year in high school, the Clearwater Festival. And uh, Pete was a massive influence on me. I got to know Pete as an adult. I got to work with him a lot. And that guitar, that 12 string that I played at the top of the episode, I got this right after Obama's first inauguration. Oh, it's gone out of tune. Sorry. <laughs> I uh, That's the problem with 12 strings. But um, I got that right after we did this Sunday concert right before Obama was inaugurated the first time. So if you saw it, it was on HBO. If you come to my live shows, I talk about it because a lot of amazing things happened that day. But one of them was Pete Seeger and Tal Rodriguez Seeger, his grandson, joined Bruce Springsteen to sing This Land is Your Land, right? You know, probably the most fitting song you could sing and kind of in many ways, has a lot of what I talked about in this episode, right? That's what Woody Guthrie did. Woody Guthrie was the internet back then, right? For the working man. He was traveling around with folk songs saying, this is what's going down. These are these factory owners killing immigrants, you know, killing poor people for their own profit. You better get hip to what's going down. You're working for the company store. That's how information was disseminated back then. You know, that's why that was Bob Dylan's hero. That's why Bob Dylan would write songs about civil rights and go down to the South and play them on the back of a truck in some field in Mississippi, you know, to spread information and conscious progressive thought that wasn't otherwise being disseminated or getting to the right people that needed to hear the message, right? So Obama's inauguration was like, uh, 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 it was like making good on a progress of, uh, you know, or on a, on a promise of progressivism. You know, this country was electing its first African-American president, you know, something that was long overdue, but felt beautiful in the moment, you know, because he was a wonderful dude that we could all get behind. And he was there with his beautiful family celebrating this amazing day. So it was a true chance to rejoice. I'll tear up talking about it as I do. I, I, Cause I was there, man. I felt the vibe. It was real. And we can come back to that. You know, we're better 
you know, then our sort of lower instincts that we've been drowning in, you know, that this country has been overrun by, right? But we're here in this moment, spirit of love and democracy was in the air. And Pete Seeger goes out there and he brought the 12 string that he had played with Woody Guthrie, right? This old ass 12 string looked like it came out of Lead Belly's closet or trunk or something, you know? And he brought it out of retirement to play it on this song. And as I've said before, it was about 10 degrees out. U2 was, we, we rehearsed U2 the night before and like bass player told me he couldn't even feel his fingers. It was that cold. I mean, it was insane, right? So Pete comes out, plays the song, plays it on the 12 string. We're in this little tent after the gig, you know, and I'm like, Tal, that's amazing. I just got to touch the 12 string. He goes, look, it cracked. It had given up the ghost, right? It didn't survive the cold weather. And I was like, what a perfect ending, right? It was holding out that long. And that was the moment it was like, I've come here to say what I needed to say. 12 string, you know, it's like an orchestra in and of itself. That's why, you know, when the birds, Roger McGuinn and Crosby picked up 12 strings and reinterpreted Dylan's songs, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, you know, it sounded amazing. You're like, what is that sound? And what are these words? And what is that sparking in me? You know, there's something about a 12 string just it sparks the imagination. It's the twang, you know, as David Lindley would tell me, we had a long talk about this because when I got into the bazooki, I was like, there's something about the double course, two strings, you know? And he goes, yeah, brother, it's the twang. The twang does more than just a single string can. You know why? Because they're working in harmony, right? They're a little bit discordant. They're a little bit different, but they're in the same key. And they're working towards the same purpose, right? They're elevating the same vibe. They're helping to tell the same story. And isn't that a beautiful thing? When we hear something like that, when we see these voices come together in one song, so to speak, you know, that's when you're cooking with fire and we have the potential like no other planet or no other planet (laughs) or country on earth to do that. You know, our strength is in our diversity, but we have to be in tune with each other. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same. If your pitch is a little different, good. It's only going to make the sound sweeter, but let's get in harmony. Let's get on the same page. Let's get in the same key and let's do this. And that's what we're going to do as a country, folks. That's what we're coming towards. I know it seems dark. I know it's disheartening. But love always prevails, as I say, and we're going to win. We're going to prevail. And in the meantime, we're going to lift each other up. We're going to be serious, but we're going to be in tune and aligned the way our spirits need to be. All right. That's probably enough for this week. Do you guys watch Better Call Saul? Because if you don't, you should. I know it's a long walk if you if you haven't gotten to season six you know jump in there but season six man that is incredible the the first two episodes premiered in in one two-hour shot and then episode three was uh last week and i won't give any spoiler alerts but good god 
you know, you're watching it. Like this is some of the best television I've ever seen. And not just because of the, you know, the plot twists, which were crazy. It was, you know, the cinematography and the work that went into that. Right. And there's a scene in particular without any spoiler alerts, you know, they shot it in the desert somewhere in California. I read the director's notes and, and, and there was visual shots in there that you hadn't seen before, you know, just amazing stuff where you're like, man, I can't believe no one's ever thought of that shot before because it's so good and it tells such a story and brings me into this place and lets me see it from the character's point of view, which is what art does, right? It gives you empathy. It lets you feel what somebody else is feeling. And when you do that, you expand your own humanity. And it's fun to do that, right? It's fun to be entertained. We want to hear stories. You know, cavemen would sit around fires and tell stories, right? I don't know what they'd talk about, but they'd be like, yo, you should have seen this brontosaurus, dude. You know, or we didn't, we weren't there at the same time, but <laughs> whatever, saber tooth tiger, you know, people want to be entertained. They want to hear about somebody else's experience and their thrills and their disappointments and their loves. You know, we're, we're all one big family and, and ultimately we will realize that. And, and, and we'll root out the people that are trying to separate that for their own good, right? Because the only way you're really happy is when you become selfish, selfless, not selfish. <laughs> Selfishness will not make you happy. You think it will, but it won't. It never really works. It doesn't fill up that hole. Only serving others selflessly ultimately can give you the contentment we want. And it doesn't mean don't take care of yourself and your own. Do that, you know? Think globally, act locally. That's a bumper sticker, but it makes a hell of a lot of sense. So Pete Seeger, you know, was a guy who sort of helped me see that at a young age because I would go to this festival and it was in Croton Park, you know, here in Westchester on the Hudson River. And it went on forever. And he, he cleaned up the Hudson River, you know, all the PCBs that PCBs that GE had put in there, you know, in their factories upriver up by Troy and Albany area, they got cleaned up. Corporations put them there. Governments let it stay there, right? Because corporations were funding the guys who were getting elected, right? Just like we see now. And they didn't want to hurt their bottom line. But here's this folk singer, even before the hippies came around and decided he was going to do something about it. And he did, you know? And when you went there, it was all local organizations. And you'd learn about other things in your community where you could pitch in and make a difference. And it felt good to be a part of something like that, you know? And some other time I'll talk about all the other cool things I got to do. Pete Seeger, I got to be at his 90th birthday, you know, party at the garden, which is this incredible concert with Springsteen and everybody. But, you know, the, the, the main thing I remember with Pete was just being around, you know, the banks of, of the Hudson in the rain, talking to him. And, and I went there one time with Jackson and we did like a benefit for the donors on the Friday night before the festival opens the festival Saturday and Sunday. And uh, we went there Friday night for this special donor concert that Jackson was playing. And then we got a little like boat ride on the sloop. The Clearwater was a sloop, like an old sailing ship. That's what it was named after. Right. And Jackson sound checking. And I probably told this story before, but Pete comes up to me and I start talking to him about politics. You know, he's probably 91, 92 at this point, I think, 
he might've died at 92, but whatever, you know, he's old man. Right. So I'm like, you know, Hey, blah, blah, blah. I say something, you know, trying to sound smart and impressive about politics. And he starts quoting West German newspapers to me. He's like, did you read that article on Trotsky last week in the Berliner or whatever? I was like, what? (laughs) You know what I mean? The amount of information he was consuming and holding in at that age. Think globally, act locally, right? Dude was paying attention to what was coming out in German newspapers, but he was there, you know, 30 miles away from his home in Beacon, making sure we were keeping the river clean in his backyard. That is how you do it, right? So anyway, that's enough for this week. Episode 61. Everybody stay cool. Stay, you know, level-headed. Do what you got to do on Twitter to stay safe and keep your spirits up because it's changed. Don't, Don't kid yourself. It's not the same place it was and it was never a bastion of sanity to begin with. I'm not negative on it. I'm just letting you know. For me, I had to turn off the comments. Do what you have to do. Take a break. Get out there in nature. Enjoy your week. Thank you, listeners. I got listeners in Greece. Got my boy Jeff over there. He's kite surfing. Got Barbara's down in Texas. She's digging the instruments. Somebody asked for the 12 string, so you got it. Next week, I got it even crazier instrument for you and it'll continue the david crosby theme so until then be well and we'll see you next week peace